Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Citizen Tame, the podcast where we are filled with rage. Uh, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. Well, I'm with you as long as the Supreme Court allows women to have podcasts, I guess. <laughs> they can't stop us yet. <laughs> uh... uh... Though they will try. Yeah, exactly. Yes, we are filled with rage. Uh, I, I don't think that, you know, we really need to explain why we're filled with rage. Um, I think that at this point, if you've been listening to us, you know sort of our political perspectives and definitely our perspective on women's rights and feminism and the rights of people with uteruses generally. So, yeah, fuck all y'all if you don't get that. So, mm -hmm. yep. Um, so this is this is a fun time. This is a fun time to be recording, uh, but hopefully we'll have a little bit of fun with this episode because we are actually going to talk a lot about women. Yes, we are. And this was already planned. <laughs> yes, we were already like, this is what we're going to do. And then this the the Supreme Court decision about um, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade came down. And of course, we're even angrier now. Um, but yeah, we're going to talk about women, how awesome women are, how great women are, women who love other women uh and men just need not apply on this one um one of so. my friends yesterday who is a man uh texted me about a show that he's been watching and i was and i was just like unless it is full of stupid men getting their sh the shit beat out of them then i am not interested <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to say, I looked at I looked at my dog the other day, and I was just like, I think that you're one of the few males I am like willing to to be in the presence of right now. Basically, <laughs> it's like my dog, and I'm staying with my parents. So my dog and my father are the two males that I'm just like, you're okay. Rest of them, I'm not so certain about. Yeah, the rest of them are on probation. They can reapply later. <laughs> uh, so other than all of that shit, how are you, Karen? Are you okay otherwise? <laughs> You know, I, yeah, I was having a great week until yesterday, so, and even, even yesterday wasn't so bad, but I just, yeah, it, that, it, it's funny how something that you, even when you know it's coming, can just kind of ruin your day. Uh, yeah. And even when it doesn't specifically necessarily have anything to do with you, which is kind of the whole point, is that this doesn't have any, like, the people deciding this, it doesn't even have anything to do with them, but... Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, but otherwise, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I have about a week and a half until I leave the country. <laughs> I might come back. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> 
Again, it's one of those, this was planned already, but apparently Karen's just leaving America. I mean, so. I did buy a round-trip ticket, but, you know, those can be changed. I mean, you don't have to take the second leg of the trip, I'm just saying. It's true. Although, it's true. although you're going to France, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and France is notoriously difficult in terms of getting in as an immigrant, so. True. However, once you're in Europe, it's easy to get around, so, I mean. That is you true. You have to stay in France. That is true. <laughs> I uh, I love the United Kingdom. I do not recommend going to the United Kingdom right now either. They are having their own they are issues. Yes. How are you? I'm pretty good. I am actually I stayed off of Twitter yesterday, which was a wonderful idea for my mental health. I think I'm going to do the same thing today. Um yeah, every I, time um, I started to venture on there, I'd be like, mm, "Nope." No, Instagram too. I, I basically stayed off of Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Yeah. I was just like, no, I think I'm going to just have a quiet day. I, I mean, I think that that's healthy. Uh, and and my my sort of feeling at this point is, and I, I've, I've said this on a couple of different social media platforms, my feeling is if despair doesn't help, um, if you are going to tweet things, write things, et cetera, that are despairing, you better give some actionable solutions, right? So like, what can we do? Um, I completely understand the despair. I completely understand the anger and the grief and, and everything, especially for people that, you know, I, like I said before, I feel very lucky that I live in New York State and that I, there are degrees of protection that I have because of where I live. Um, that's simply because that that's where I live. It's not, you know, anything else. Um, but what, what I really want is, you know, provide me with some kind of action, some kind of solution, some kind of step to take. Otherwise, don't tell me that the world is ending because I just I can't I can't do it. I'm just not dealing with it. If that helps you for some reason, go for it. But I don't want to engage in it. So that's kind of my attitude at this point. Yeah. But otherwise, yes, I'm in upstate New York where it is gorgeous and warm and sunny. And my dog is very happy to get to run around on the lawn and (laughs) bark at squirrels and bark at cyclists and bark at everybody. So he's having a great time. He's like, why are we not here all the time? <laughs> <laughs> I think he is a little bit like, you know, New, New York is challenging for him and everything. And and here he's just like, yes, squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. <laughs> sweet pup. He's a very he's sweet so boy. Cute. He's a very sweet boy. Um, so this week we wanted to talk about a, a couple of different things. I wanted to, to just mention really quickly, this was something that I was thinking about um, off and on since our conversation a couple of weeks ago about um, representations of violence in the media. And this was particularly in reference to gun violence, right? And there were, there were a number of articles that came out that kind of repeated some of the similar, some, some similar rhetoric that has some good sides and bad sides about, you know, media violence causing uh, real life violence. And that tends to be one that pretty automatically we're all just like, no, that's not how it works, right? Which I think is is absolutely accurate. But one of the things that I was thinking about the other day was because it does, it's true, it does not cause, the people who cause violence are the people who commit violence. Mm -hmm. Most people will watch an action movie or a serial killer movie or, you know, all kinds of violent things. I like violent horror films a lot. Um, I do not then go out and murder people with a chainsaw. That's just not something that I do. Now, someone who is already having some issues might go out and murder people with a chainsaw, but that's their fault, not the fault of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. 
But one of the things that I think that we do need to talk about more and that people are beginning to find more nuance in is this, this question of causation versus normalization. And I think that what um, media violence does do is it normalizes it. And it, it normalizes behavior, right? The, the example that I thought of was um, the kind of romanticization of uh, you know, a male character falling in love with a woman and then just pursuing her and pursuing her and pursuing her until she gives it. And there are a lot of films that represent this as being romantic, that this is like, you know, oh, he's so ardent, he's so passionate, he's so, um, he's so much in love with her, right? And the films very often, the stories very often treat this as being a good thing. It's romantic. It's, it's it, you know, he's, he's attractive. He means well, all of those things. But of course, in reality, what we don't want that, right? Because that's stalking. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain behaviors in certain films. Uh, a good example is something like Twilight, which really does normalize stalking behavior. Uh, yeah. And, and the, the problem- worse. Yeah, exactly. And the, the problem with it is not that it's not going to cause men to go out and stalk women, right? But it is going to normalize that kind of behavior because it says to both boys and girls, both to men and women, th this kind of behavior is okay, that it's romantic, that it's actually desirable. It, it normalizes abuse. It says that this is how boys are supposed to behave with girls. This is how, and this, and girls should treat it and view it as being a romantic thing, not as an actual dangerous thing. And I think that the same could be said for some depictions of gun violence. Um, you know, we, we've normalized the use of guns in a lot of different contexts. We've normalized the use of the, the idea of the lone heroic gunman who kind of, the, and the rogue cop who goes out against all laws, all justice and goes out and saves everybody, right? Which is a very attractive myth, but it's a myth. And that's where I think we need to be focusing our attention is that this is about normalization. It's about the normalization of, cer of certain kinds of behavior because people do internalize that. They, they look at that kind of thing and they go like, well, the good, it's the good guy with a gun kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact of the matter is most of us are not the good guy with a gun. In fact, even if we have the best of intentions, we're not Tom Cruise or Nick Cage or <laughs> um, Bruce Willis in Die Hard, right? It, most of us are not going to go and rescue everybody by using a gun. We, don't, we are not trained in the use of weaponry like that. Um, and the idea that, that, is, uh, that that's desirable, that that is okay, is the problem. Well, even, even beyond that, like I was in a conversation with some people the other day, and um, we were talking about travel not specifically my trip but we were just in general talking about travel places we've gone and like does this place feel safe you know internationally um sometimes and also in the country but like you know one of the people in the conversation was like oh yeah when i was in this particular place uh i think it was san francisco it was like i felt totally safe because i was with this person and this person who both had guns like they're both you know police officers whatever so they had guns with them and i'm just thinking like okay but why do you want to be in a situation where or, or or i'm trying to figure out how to explain it but like just the just the idea that it was like oh yeah i felt safe because i was with someone who could shoot somebody like it's no big deal and i'm just thinking like why would you want to be in that circumstance like 
it's one thing, sure, I have protection in case it's needed, but it was just so flippant the way it was like, oh yeah, I'm good. They'll just, they'll just shoot somebody if they come up and try to hurt me. You know, it just, that's, that's the kind of normalization I think that, at least that I was thinking of when you brought up this topic. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's that attitude. I think that it is an action movie mentality that like, Mm -hmm. if you, and, and so for example, um, well, a good example is I just recently watched the film Red Eye. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, Which is a great film. I really like it. At the end, um, there's there's a scene where basically one of the characters gets shot. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those where it's just like, so this this other character just happened to have this gun in the house and picked it up and and shot the bad guy. Right. Good thing. All right. You grab the gun, et cetera. But that whole idea that, you know, that that's what you need to have, because what if, um, you know, Killian Murphy is uh, is a hitman who is going to entrap you into murdering a politician. Right. So it's it's that kind of thing. I think that it some of some of what films do is that they they make us kind of create these scenarios in our head where, well, if I'm on the street in San Francisco and then, you know, someone comes up to me and is like, give me all your money. And then I'm like, bam, you know, it's that kind of attitude. And adults still have it. Like, it's the sort of thing that we tend to to give to teenagers that we're just like, oh, teenagers are going to act like that. But adults have that too. Just like, we're going to protect ourselves somehow. Mm -hmm. And it's it that is what's dangerous about it and i i think that when we scrutinize media we do need to talk about that idea that this is not going to cause gun violence right but it is going to normalize certain types of gun violence and certain kinds of fear as well um that 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 are really problematic and that we need to you know we've talked about it a lot that we need to examine in this country especially our relationship to weapons and our relationship to guns and what we think guns are capable of and what they're actually capable of. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's one of the things I think gets lost in some of the conversations specifically about violence in media. We tend to either say, well, violence in media causes real life violence or violence in media doesn't cause real life violence. And that seems to be the wrong conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. So this is something that I was, that I was thinking about with all of the the, the uh, various things that have been going on for the past few weeks. I think the only thing about it is that it gets tricky because, you know, our movies play internationally and make a lot of money internationally. And a lot of other countries don't seem to have the problems that we do of normalizing violence. Yeah. At least they don't seem to. Again, I mean, I'm not there, so I don't know what the, what the day-to-day you know, a citizen is talking about or, or thinking about, but it just, I mean, we just in, in general, it feels like the United States just has more casual violence than I see from other countries. I think that is true when it comes to gun violence. Um, yeah. I do know that places like the United Kingdom have a lot of problems with stabbings because knives and, and um, like the, that kind of weapon is more available in the united kingdom than guns are so i think that that's where you begin to get into the actual laws about what is available and what isn't in the united states we definitely have a culture of gun of gun violence generally the use of guns right but um the 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 fact is that we have we have greater access to weapons 
right. to those well, kinds of weapons. To, to mass casualty weapons. Yeah, to those kinds of weapons. So the, the difference being, you know, if someone goes on a stabbing spree, um, you're not going to kill large numbers of people. Um, when, when that happens. Right. So that, that I think is, is at the point of laws. It's not so much about the culture itself of violence. There's plenty of violence around the world. It's the availability of the weapon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, like the, uh, the other day I had forgotten about this, but the other day someone was talking about, um, the same day that Sandy Hook happened in China, there was someone who went into a school with a with a knife and stabbed a bunch of kids, like or similar numbers of kids too, but not one single fatality mm-hmm. in the stabbings in China. So. Well, yeah, and that, that's that's the problem. That's why so much of the conversation about um, gun control is about con- you know controlling the availability of weapons and controlling yeah. the type of weapons that are available. Um, I don't think that it's about, you know, Americans are inherently more violent than other nations. Mm. I, I think that probably if the level of weaponry was available in the United Kingdom or in China or in France, right, we would have similar results. Yeah. Right. Except, except that in the United States it is available and in those countries it isn't. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. It's obviously it's all kind of projection is sort of like, you know, what if kind of thing, because we don't have those numbers, but the difference tends to be we have the availability of the guns. They don't. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And I mean, luckily, Congress just passed um, the first major gun safety legislation in 30 years, but we'll see what happens when it makes its way to the Supreme Court. Well, it's not going to be there yet, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that'll take a while. It'll take a little while. Jesus. All right. So moving on, let's talk about some some more, um, I guess, happier stuff, more interesting things, stuff that is not about violence and death. so I we realized this this past week that a lot of the discussions that we've been having are actually about queer men, all right, when we're talking about um, LGBTQ representation, a lot of the stuff that we talked about has been um, queer men, gay men, uh, bisexual men, etc. So I kind of thought, like, maybe we should talk about women more. <laughs> yes, we should. So before we get into some of these things, I, sh- I will just ask you, Karen, what is your favorite, like, queer female film? Oh, man. Um... Or a favorite? A favorite. Um, recently, I would probably say, gosh, I really love Disobedience. It's a beautiful movie. Um, it is, yeah. Uh, and I also really, really like The Favorite because it's hilarious and so devilish. And I, I love it that women get to be really horrible <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> That is, a, that is that is definitely a movie about like, hey, ladies be crazy too. Yep, yep. <laughs> in their that. own in their own in their own specific ways. Yes. Um. Well, I mean, I I fairly recently watched Bound, which I I love. Um. Mm-hmm. The other one I think is Carol, and I I really love Carol. First of all, because Kate Blanchett is just amazing. Yes. Um, but the two of them together, I think they have great chemistry and, um, it's, the relationship is believable. You believe in these two characters, you believe that they would fall in love with each other. 
um, and also have kind of the the issues that they have. And it's just a gorgeous film. And I'm, uh, you know, spoiler alert for anyone who has not seen Carol. First of all, shame on you. You should yeah, have seen so Carol good. by now. Yeah. Um, but I really like the fact that it has a happy ending mm-hmm. because so there's so many. We t- we've talked about this a couple of times. There's so many films that have have good queer representation and then, you know, kill off the gay character at the end, kill off one of the characters or just have it end unhappily where no one is together. And it's really nice to see a film like Carol, which could have ended like that. Um, actually, the the original book by Patricia Highsmith, uh, her stated purpose in in writing that book was to, to give positive queer representation to women. Um, and to be like, you know, this doesn't have to end with everybody dying. It can actually end with people being happy. And I really like that it's, despite all the drama and everything else, that it actually ends with like this, this indication that they are going to go on and, and have a good relationship. Yeah, it is a beautiful movie. So I really like that. I also do really, I, I like, but I'm a cheerleader, um, which is just so funny. <laughs> <laughs> And, and again, one of those that uh, I didn't see until a couple years ago, and um, some of it was because it just wasn't immediately available, but it is, it's so funny and it's so like, it's like, um, it really reminded me of a John Waters film in the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I totally get that. That's a good comparison. It has that, that, that aesthetic, that sort of bright bright colors and kind of extreme slightly overacting you know all of that just felt a little bit so it was a bit john waters to me so Mm -hmm. yeah i love that movie (laughs) um so one of the things i wanted to talk about a little bit uh and i don't know how many of these these films you've necessarily seen but some of the early representations of uh queer women tend to be particularly in hollywood um tend to be these very sort of repressed, austere, quote, masculine women. That that kind of concept of um, queer women are inherently masculine at some level. So one of the one of the big ones is obviously Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, who is a very repressed person in a lot of ways. I think that some of this actually does have to do with representations of repression and not being able to, to express your own desires, et cetera. But it goes back to some of those questions about um, that we talked about when it came to queer men in, in, early film, in earlier film, um, that representation of perversity, that there's something perverse about women who desire other women. There's something perverse about uh, or deviant about um, lesbianism or bisexuality. And that you get hints of that in in various films. Again, you're talking about queer coding. It's never stated that Mrs. Danvers is in love with Rebecca, um, but it's pretty clear from context, yeah, and from her behavior that she has these these feelings about Rebecca. And this this comes up time and again. There's an entire subgenre of films about women's prisons, and almost always you've got at least one um, matron or warden or um, female guard who is typed as queer mm-hmm. uh, and that comes up again and again and and very often it that's then tied into um uh this idea of sadism or in it's some kind of enjoyment of dominance the the other place that i think representation gets kind of interesting actually is and this this tends to be in um 
uh, non-Hollywood films, but the the representation of the the girls' school, the girls the girls' boarding school. And there's a lot of indications of queerness in those kinds of films. The two films that I was thinking of particularly are Machen in Uniform, um, which is the early German film, and Olivia, which is about a French uh, boarding school. And that was made in the 1950s, I think, by Jacqueline Audrey. Have you seen either of those? I have not. I have not. And I know Machen in Uniform was on Criterion Channel, but I don't know if it still is. It's like been on my list for a long time. I think it's a Kino film and I know I so it might be on the I think it might actually be on the Kino now um oh, okay. uh app if it's not there I think that you should be able to to watch it somewhere <laughs> yeah it's one of those that's kind of ubiquitous it's a really interesting film because it does actually you know it there I I think that more so than Olivia in a lot of ways it does actually like deal with this this somewhat uncomfortable relation the idea of a relationship between an older woman and a a, a schoolgirl literally um and so you, there is something a little bit predatory about it but at the same time it actually treats this this concept of having a crush on your teacher kind of thing as a way of growing up basically and it's interesting to see it in the context of women desiring other women hmm. um can you think of any other like representations like this um i'm trying to think early oh, film yeah um i really can't um i was trying to think of some other similar examples that i've seen but nothing's coming to mind well one one that i actually just thought of as you were speaking um is Marlena Dietrich in Morocco. And she quite famously has a scene where she um, she's dressed in a tuxedo and she kisses a woman. Uh, and there's no, and most of the film is actually about her affair with Gary Cooper <laughs> uh, and, and the romance there. But there's definitely strong indications that she is, that she's bisexual. And Marlena Dietrich in particular, you know, she's one of those figures who comes up again and again as um, a sort of representations of that, similar to Claude Rains, as we were talking about the other the other week, uh, that that fluid sexuality, mm-hmm. um, the desiring both men and women. Greta Garbo is is someone else, and she was actually in a, a very good film called Queen Christina, where she is playing a character who habitually wears men's clothes, pretends to be a man, does fall in love with the man, but is also quite obviously in some kind of a relationship with one of her ladies in waiting. So that's, and there's kind of a, a more positive representation of bisexuality there as um, in, in women, it tends, bisexuality seems to often be translated into promiscuity. Right. Yeah. Uh, that bisexual women are, you know, they, they they're sleeping with everybody yeah. yeah yeah like there's like there's no necessarily emotion attached to it it's just about sex yeah <clears throat> yeah exactly and very often in these films the the ultimate you know the great love and this is true in, in queen christine and this is also true in morocco the great love is male um the one that they will sacrifice everything for is a man and but they they seem to have these these side relationships with women um and and that you know kind of translates into some of the stuff that we were talking about not that long ago about this the fluidity of certain character types of sexual fluidity but with 
with women, it tends to be, it's, it's interesting, a lot of bisexual men, the assumption seems to be that they're bisexual, but they're actually gay. With bisexual women, um, again, this is in, in uh, classical Hollywood representation, the assumption seems to be they are, they're bisexual, but they're actually straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which probably says something about who's making the films. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that women by necessity must desire men <laughs> and not other women. Um, it's interesting, both uh, Martin in Uniform and Olivia were directed by women. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. And they, they, and it's unambiguously gay. Like these, these are not straight women. <laughs> um, but I, I, this actually gets into it's a question that you know I, I thought you might have some, some thoughts on um, about the, the fetishizing of oh, yeah. women who love other women, and not the fetishizing of bisexual women, the fetishizing of lesbian women. Um, do you have thoughts on that, Karen? Oh, I sure do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know how articulate I will be about this, but, um, but I remember just, you know, back in, uh, probably in the nineties is when I started to see some of this and, and especially on TV, there'd be these big deals about how like, oh, these two female characters are going to kiss in the next episode. And it was always about stirring up like the male fantasy version of seeing two women together, whether it's kissing or more. And even in the context of, of when these things were shown, like I'm thinking of, I can't think of any examples. Uh, I remember it was hinted at a lot with the show friends, you know, for example, but um, yeah, yeah, but yeah. And it was always like, actually there was an episode where, um, uh, Oh my gosh, I just blinked on her name. Holy crap. Uh, Rachel. Also on Stranger Things. No, no, no. Winona Ryder. She oh. was a guest. She was a guest star. And um, she played this old, like, college friend of Rachel's. And Rachel has this whole thing where she is like, oh, my gosh, we totally made out when we were in college. And um, and Winona Ryder is just like, yeah, that never happened. And then at the end of the episode, she's like, yeah, I'm just kidding. That totally happened. And it was amazing. And then she kisses. They kiss again. And then uh, Phoebe jumps in and she's just like, well, I got to get in on this. And and then she kisses Rachel and then it's like, eh, whatever, it's fine. And it was totally about like people, fans had been, you know, quote unquote, waiting for that to happen because they just have these fans. Like it's, it was, you know, the fantasy part, excuse me. It wasn't about these two women actually exploring their sexuality at all. It was just about giving the fans something that they wanted to see. And I started to see more and more of that throughout the 90s. It wasn't, and mostly on TV, sometimes in movies, it really never felt like it was about, like, women exploring being, like, whether they were lesbian or bisexual or whatever. It was just about giving men something that they wanted, something that that yeah. they wanted to see that fed that that fantasy fetish, fetish, fetishization um, that's a difficult word to say. It is. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so, and I think that there are probably tons and tons of examples of it that are just not coming to me right now. Well, I, I think that it, it comes up in media a lot yeah. and it's, it's, and I, it's, I'm glad that you referenced friends. Cause there was actually a scene that I just saw the other day. 
um, that I'd completely forgotten about, but it's, it's like, I think it's Rachel and Monica are, um, when they leave the apartment. Yeah. They're trying to get their apartment back and they, and they finally do it by telling Chandler and Joey, if you let us keep the apartment, we will kiss for like a minute or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't actually show it on screen, but you know, the obvious, what is obviously the joke is that they really want to see these two hot girls kiss each other. Right. Of course, it isn't actually about the fact that we know that they are both straight women and it isn't actually about the fact that they might desire each other, that they might be bisexual or that they might actually be sexually or romantically interested in each other. It is a performance for men. Yes. Um, And that comes up again and again. And that's, it's very much a feature of the porn aesthetic. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, that lesbianism or, um, or bisexuality is a performance that women put on for men. You know, I, I kissed a girl and I liked it kind of thing. Right. Um, and that comes, like, I remember back, uh, I forget what year it was, but it was, I think it was on the VMA awards when Madonna and Britney Spears kissed. Right. And there was this whole big to do about it, but it, it still comes off as being this performance that it isn't about their desire or about their sexuality, but, but about performing for a male viewer and the male viewer being like, oh, that's hot. Because at the end of the day, you know what? If two lesbians are kissing, they are not doing it for men. Right, exactly. <laughs> men are not involved in this equation. If two bisexual women or a bisexual woman and a lesbian woman, et cetera, are kissing each other and they desire each other, again, it doesn't have anything to do with a man, right? But there is still this attitude of like, I think it goes back to what I, you know, I was just saying about um, bisexual women are assumed to be actually straight, mm-hmm. right? They might have. And so it turns then their relationships with women or their desire for other women into, uh, into something that is, is a performance that is ultimately going to be fed into heteronormativity. I love that word, heteronormativity. It sounds so smart. Um, I love the use of that word. I don't love what it means. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I actually, before, before I get into some of the more positive representations, <laughs> I think that this is a good point to talk about this, this question of queer baiting. Yeah. Um, which we see a lot and, and particularly in more recent films. And I really hate that some of these films are films that I actually love. Yeah. Uh, but some of the, the ones that I was able to think of are, are stuff like um, Ghostbusters Answer the Call, which doesn't completely queer bait. It definitely implies that, that Jillian at least is, um, is gay or is bisexual. It kind of implies that Aaron is bisexual, but there's, other than very small indications, right? There's yeah, very there's little that's actually anything small. out. Yeah, it's never over ever. Yeah, um, and you get something similar in Charlie's Angels mm-hmm. uh, with Which with the Christ- version of Charlie's Angels. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about the the more recent version of Charlie's yeah. Angels, but actually, I mean, you get it actually a little bit in in some of the earlier films as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it has, I think the, the newer Charlie's Angels has less of that, but it has that similar element of women performing sexuality for men. Yeah. Um, that they're pretending as someone. I don't think Ghostbusters has that, but, um, but it, there is that performative aspect to it that, ha, 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 oh, we're going to kiss the girl because the boys like it kind of thing. Right. Which, um, yeah. 
In Charlie's Angels, well, if I'm remembering correctly, I've seen it once and it was, you know, a year or two ago. But if I'm remembering correctly, they actually weaponize it against the male villain at one point. Yeah, I think that you're right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, again, it's a little more, it's a little more mutable. And I I think that some of the queer baiting that goes on is, is this exploration of women's relationships to other women and female relationships, including friendships, tend to look different than male friendships, right? Yeah. And and so you also don't, so it, it becomes this really bizarre um, kind of catch-22 for, for a lot of female representation that um, women are permitted on screen, certainly, to show more affection for each other, show more physical affection for each other, hugging, touching, et cetera, um, than men are. On the one hand, on the other hand, it means that it's much easier to kind of to queer bait with female characters where you're 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 sort of saying like, oh, they might be gay, but they might not, but they might just be good friends, but they might not all of that stuff. Um, and and it, it because because female relationships are more generally more tactile, more women are more likely to tell each other that they love each other, but not mean that in a sexual or romantic way. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one that is, I think is actually kind of interesting is Ocean's 8, which strongly indicates. <laughs> well, it definitely says that they were in a relationship <laughs> at one point, but it, the line is so quick and could possibly be taken a different way if you really wanted to, but it's very much like Sandra Bullock and Kate Blanchett were in a relationship. Yeah, but a lot of people do not interpret it like that. Which is weird because there's a line where Sandra Bullock specifically, whatever Sandra, uh, Kate Blanchett's character name Lou, is. Yeah. Lou, yeah. She specifically says that she dated this this artist guy because Lou and I were in a rough patch. Yeah. Like, yeah, and you don't say that about your friends. No, and there's no other way to interpret that. I dated this guy because my friend and I were in a rough patch. Like, no, that's not how. No, they definitely were in a relationship. I don't think there's any other way to interpret that. But also, they could have made it a little bit more explicit, too. Yeah, they could have made it a lot more over. And I think that that's where this the queer baiting issue comes in, is that they they come really close in that film to explicitly confirming that these two women were in a relationship, are in a relationship, have feelings for each other, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they never quite get there. They never actually, you know, and not even something as simple as, oh, this is my ex-girlfriend or, oh, this is my girlfriend. You know, right. you, we never get that. We don't get a kiss. We don't get like any of that kind of um, uh, confirmation of it. Right. And Which and I think always, that, oh, I'm sorry. No, go on. I was gonna say it's always made me wonder were they pulling back on that because they're making like the girl version of Ocean's Eleven and they just didn't want people to assume that that was the only reason was it that they were like afraid to just be that explicit with these two stars or was it that they just trusted the audience to understand what they were saying like I'm not I've never really fully understood why they didn't just go there I I have a feeling that it had to do with some of the stuff that we talked about when it comes to Disney and things like that is this fear of actually depicting that in a mainstream film. Yeah. Um, And, and again, it would have been very 
easy in a lot of ways, you know, simply having just like lose my ex-girlfriend or lose my girlfriend or anything like that. We could have had a little bit of that. Um, And also the fact that you have two actresses who, I mean, we can't make assumptions about anybody's identity, but they have presented as uh, heterosexual mm-hmm. um, the actresses themselves, and so then when you when you get into that, you get a lot of criticism of like, well, why didn't they have lesbian women play these characters? Too? Yeah, so I can although see I, that. although actually, you're also talking about two actresses that have been um, definitely queered in a lot of ways, both yes. in in the way that they talk and in the things that they talk about. Um, you know, Kate, Kate Blanchett in particular has been queered in film, um, particularly mm-hmm. in her later career now. Uh, Which is one of the reasons I say you can't make assumptions just because she's never, ex- you know, expressed yeah. in her personal life, like, hey, this is where I am. Like, you know, you look at the characters that she's played and I mean, I don't know, like she does them very well. So I don't really, <laughs> I don't really care how she identifies because she's a damn good actress and she's freaking beautiful. Well, it's it's so similar in some ways to Rachel Weisz, right? Yeah. Who again has often played queer characters, explicitly queer characters, mm-hmm. um, and and so is Kate Blanchett. But is is you know as far as we know in, in her personal life, is married to a man. She might be bisexual. You know, we don't know exactly. Right. Um, but has always sort of had this queer. Um, I, the the closest I could come to say that she's had this queer persona, right? Yeah and public persona and so yeah and then there is that tendency to then begin to read that persona into her characters and to read her characters into that persona Mm -hmm. so that there is this sort of like what do we know about Rachel you know is Rachel Weisz gay is she is she bi is she just you know what what are we saying here and of course she's just a really good actress (laughs) (laughs) I don't know there's some interviews where she's just like oh I love women so much it's just like Mm -hmm. You do. <laughs> I mean, I'm personally of the belief that most people are at least a little bit bi, but that's yeah. just me. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but it's it's this interesting issue when you're talking about queer baiting, particularly when talking about female characters, because uh, be- because female relationships look so different. So so the the Ocean's Eight example, if you've got you know Kate Blanchett and um, and Sandra Bullock kind of holding hands and touching each other, et cetera. If Brad Pitt and George Clooney were doing that in Ocean's Eleven, we would automatically be like, well, they're definitely gay. Yeah. Right. But to women doing that, we're a little bit more like, are they? Or they could mm-hmm. be friends, or they might not be, or they could be, or they might, you know, there yeah. there's a much more fluidity there. But it means that rep- that implicit representation is harder to to come by, basically. Yes. Um, it has to be explicit. You have to say she's their girlfriends, right? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Harold, they're lesbians. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about the more explicit representations of queerness. Uh, I, I've mentioned Bound a couple of times just because I have recently I recently watched it. That's one that's interesting when it comes to fetishization. Yeah. Um, and you'd mentioned last week, I think, that uh, the way that it was marketed in the 90s mm-hmm. was very much that kind of fetishizing. And it is one of those films that's like there's a lot of leather 
there there's, is. <laughs> there's a lot of leather. There's a lot of, you know, it's literally called bound. Right. Um, it, it opens, which is funny because honestly, the first time I saw it, I was like, oh, this is going to be like a sadomasochistic thing. Right. And it turned out, no, it's nothing to do with that. They, they're literally criminals yeah. <laughs> who get tied up at one point. <laughs> but but it is a really interesting film because visually it does look like oh, this is going to be, you know, this fetishizing male gazy kind of thing. And it isn't at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's almost this, um, I don't want to say bait and switch because it's, uh, I, I think it's very clever, but it's actually using some of the expectations of that fetishizing gaze to, 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 to subvert them, right? To basically be like, by the way, this isn't for men at all. These are two women who do not desire men who are not interested in performing for men. The, the, the sex scenes, et cetera, are not particularly fetishized by a male camera. Um, and, and the men are uniformly disgusting in that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and this is one of those, I mean, it was directed by the Wachowskis, who at the time we did not know were women. They still identified as men. And, um, and it's one of those situations where it's like, man, if this movie had been made and released after they had come out, after they had transitioned, it would have been received much differently because it would have uh, had a different, I don't know, just a different um, expectation, I think, of, of what it is. So I think the marketing would have been different. And I think the fact that it had male names attached to it at the time made it very easy to present it as this movie that was you know fetish instead of what it actually is which is yeah i mean it's it's um it's one that kind of in a in a it's been a while since i've watched it i did not rewatch it this week i was trying to but i didn't get a chance um but it's it's one that almost like again with this word but weaponizes the fetish to to uh-huh. uh, to like yeah it's not quite bait and switch yeah it's not quite the right term it's it's like it's it's trying to just like turn the tables i guess like yeah, you it, came in expecting this but really you're gonna get that yeah exactly it, it presents this image right of like mm-hmm. of this is the, the because because it is playing off of those those fetishes right yeah. the the women performing for men fetish right. and it does and it does that including like just the the imagery that is being used like i say the use of leather the use of um you know tight skirts and push-up bras and all of it's that kind just of thing a, it's also just a dark movie too like yeah the lighting and stuff it's just, it's pretty dark it's dark but it's it's got a um i i'm trying to it's, it's, it's like got a, a sensuality to it, yeah, right? There, there's right, like it's right. very much velvet sheets and yeah, that's satin sorry, sheets that's, that's and... kind of yeah, that's I yeah, it's it's not dark like evil dark. It's like like sensual dark. Yeah, it's kind of like um, and and actually this translates a little bit more when when they they make the Matrix, right? Uh, you've got that. It's it's got that kind of leather bar vibe to it. Yeah. Um, and that there is something sensuous about it, that it's, it's very, again, tactile. The, the, the women are dressed in particularly the Jennifer Tilly character has like, you know, the bright lipstick, the bright colors against the black sheets and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that they're, 
and and a lot of it and what they're also riffing off of is neo-noir aesthetics and noir aesthetics only they're they're having two women instead of a man and a woman um you know we wouldn't even blink if this were a man and a woman in the same scenario right right uh, but the fact that it's two women changes a lot of, of the way that we approach it. No, but that was one of the things that actually surprised me about the film was how, um, how non-fetishizing it is and how they're taking these kinds, these stereotypes and these tropes and managing to kind of, like you say, subvert them, to, to turn the tables on them and to say like, this is actually not about um, men's fantasies. This is in some ways, it's about women's fantasies. Um, and I, I, quite, I quite like that. I quite like that the, the film actually manages to do that. I've said, I've said before, it's one of the few erotic thrillers that I'm like, we will accept this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but there, there's like a, a lot of other good representation. Unfortunately, a lot of it is more contemporary. Um, I think Booksmart is fantastic representation. Yes, in its own in its own kind of different way, right? And it it, it comes into more of that, you know, talking earlier about normalization. It comes more into that normalization of different ways of being gay, mm-hmm. different ways of being queer. That queerness is not solely about queerness. One of the things that I personally really appreciate about Booksmart is that. Um the Caitlin Deaver character, she has not really had a relationship before. And there's so many people that try to say like, well, how do you know, like for kids, how do you know you're gay unless you've actually been with somebody? And it's like, well, how do you know you're straight until you've been with somebody? And I think Booksmart just does a good job of like, she just, she knows that she's a lesbian, even if she hasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, had sex yet. And I just, I like that they, that they, kind of show that point so yeah um sorry go on no no i i absolutely that's a really good point um yeah it it is that like you know being a teenager it avoids that sort of that assumption again that heteronormativity that assumption of heterosexuality that you're heterosexual and still proven otherwise kind of thing um and and she's like nope she's gay she she's attracted to women she has not had a relationship with a woman yet (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah i mean happens all the time like i said (laughs) how does anybody know that they're straight until they've had sex um yeah but another example and i was glad you put this on the list was hearts beat loud which Mm -hmm. um is such a sweet father-daughter movie um but one of the things that i think makes it um good representation like we're talking about is the fact that this this teenage daughter who's about to go off to to college um there's there's no coming out she just already knows who she is she's you know and and her dad knows and so they don't have to have any big moment she just gets to start dating this girl and and fall in love and be in a relationship and it's just part of their life and there's no big revelation about it and i just i just really love that um that we're at a point where we can just have these types of characters mm-hmm. um, just existing and living their lives. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's that, again, it's that, it's that normalization of queerness, of saying, like, you know, you can be queer, and then that also is not the sole focus of your life and existence right. and everything. And, um, 
and uh, and people around you know that you're queer. Actually, I just thinking about this. One of my favorite representations is um, I don't know if you've seen the show The Great North. I have not. Uh, it's it's by the same kind of company that did Bob's Burgers, and it's about this family in Alaska. Um, and they're hilarious, but the the uh, the older son or the the younger son actually is his name is Ham, <laughs> and he's gay and he's explicitly gay. He's been a gay the entire time. And in fact, at the beginning of the first episode, um, they're having this conversation. He's just like, and I just have to tell everybody that I'm gay. And the whole family's like, Ham, we know you've come out to us like 15 times. We know that you're gay, and we love you. And and it's just like. And there's an entire episode where he, his boyfriend is like, so did you not like have a really dramatic coming out? And he's just like, well, no, I, so, and, and he can't remember when he had the first time he actually came out to his family because they were all so cool with it. And so it's about <laughs> him being like, well, I want to have like drama. I want to have, you know, someone gasp and, another, and, you know, I would, I would enjoy if someone broke a precious item on accident <laughs> and I want a few offensive questions. You know, he's got this whole idea about what it means to come out. Right. <laughs> and, and, but the whole point is that it's not the center of his character. He has a boyfriend. Um, his family is totally supportive. They totally know that he's gay. They're fine with it. You know, all of that. And it's this great kind of movement forward in terms of representation because they're made, they're literally making jokes about the fact that his coming out didn't have enough drama for him because everyone was so supportive. <laughs> and I just really like that. I like that, that again, that kind of normalization that this mm -hmm. is not the only thing that, that his character is, but it's also a part of him. Yeah, that's that's great. I love that. Yes, I recommend The Great North. If you have have not seen it, definitely watch it. I mean, Nick Offerman is one of the voices. He's the voice of the father. Love Nick Offerman. Um, it's it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, anything else? Any other film that you want to shout out before we close things off? Um, I mean, we've talked about some good ones. I know there's more that I'm missing, but. I don't know. I, I I think watch the ones that we've already talked about if you haven't already seen them a million Definitely. times. <laughs> Definitely. And as always, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which yes. everyone, please, if you're listening to this podcast, I don't know how you've not seen this movie because we've talked about it so many times. There is literally no excuse. In fact, yeah. I'm going to tell you all the places that you can watch it right now. I just need to. By the way, Mogden Ma Mogden in uniform is you are correct. It's available on Kino now. Good. It's two ninety nine to rent and four ninety nine to buy forever. Strongly recommend and definitely watch. I I have the Blu Ray of it. Um, definitely watch like one, one a good restoration of it. I think that it's I think it's probably one of those films that's been in the public domain for a while. Um, but good restorations it, it makes all the difference. Yeah. And Portrait of a Lady on Fire is available to stream on Hulu and Canopy and available to rent on Google Play, Vudu, YouTube, Apple, Alamo. Yeah. Everywhere. For like $1.99. So <laughs> if you don't have Hulu or Canopy, you can rent it on Vudu for $1.99. No excuses. Uh, well, do, so... Any any other recommendations for this week, Karen? Anything interesting that you've seen? Want to shout out? Um, so on Apple TV Plus, Maya Rudolph has a new show, and Ooh. um, it's called Loot, 
And it's it's really funny because it basically, I mean, it's a comedy and she's basically playing a fictionalized version of Mackenzie Scott, who is the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, who took her divorce settlement and pledged to give at least half of it away to charity. But rich people make so much money that she can't give it away fast enough. She keeps making more than she gives away. Um, anyway, but Maya Rudolph plays a, a fictionalized version of her. So she plays this woman who finds out her husband's who is played by Adam Scott, has been having an affair. She immediately is just like, yeah, we're getting divorced. And she finds out that she started a foundation seven years ago, which is run by Michaela J. Rodriguez, so um, who is amazing and was incredible in the show Pose, if you never watched Pose. Um, and uh, anyway, so she's like, oh, wait, I have this foundation, this charitable foundation that does good work. Okay, I want to get involved. But she's used to being a rich lady, and so she's having some trouble adjusting to just working for a nonprofit <laughs> and not just hopping on her jet and going wherever she wants. So it's cute. There's three episodes so far uh, available on Apple, and, and um, yeah, I highly recommend that if you have access to Apple TV. And then, um, yeah, so I, I highly, I, I say watch that one. And then I did watch Elvis yesterday. I personally enjoyed it, but I know a lot of people are not going to, and I totally understand. But if you're into Elvis and, and you at least don't hate Baz Luhrmann films, <laughs> I, I think you should check it out. It looks like a very Baz Luhrmann-y Baz Luhrmann film. It really is. It's so funny because I had asked a friend, like, does this feel more like um, you know, the Moulin Rouge, Romeo and Juliet, or does this feel more like Australia, more just straightforward? And he was like, oh, it's more like Australia. I'm like, okay, that seems like an odd choice. I don't know why he bothered to make this movie then. But so I'm watching, I'm like, no, this feels so much like (laughs) Moulin Rouge. It's not, it's not quite as wild and bright and, and, and fantastical as like Moulin Rouge is, but the, the way that it's edited and the way that the music is kind of overlaid um, on the visuals and stuff, I was like, no, this feels way more like Moulin Rouge than Australia. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I will take that as a recommendation because I was bored to death with Australia. Um, <laughs> uh, Moulin Rouge has its problems, but it is definitely an experience that, mm-hmm. that you go through. Yeah, and I will say Austin Butler who plays Elvis is really phenomenal. He's, he's very good. Yeah. It doesn't feel like, um, uh, what's the word? It doesn't feel like a, um, impersonation. It really does feel like he's, he's, you know, giving a performance as Elvis Presley. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, I, I will recommend, um, I've, I got to, I finally watched the first three episodes of Dark Winds, which I love. Yes, it's so good. It's so good. It's on AMC Plus. Uh, it's an adaptation of a Tony Hillerman uh, detective novel. It takes place in the 1970s um, on the Navajo Reservation in, um, in Arizona. It is, is so good. Uh, such great, so nice to see a lot of not white people on screen. It's great Mm -hmm. in some really excellent indigenous actors. And I particularly enjoy, um, Zahn McLarnon, who I have, who is, is, and is such a different character than the character that he plays on Reservation Dogs, (laughs) um, and is just 
so incredibly different yet he's playing it's kind of the same the same sort of role which is interesting <laughs> um but yeah it's a really good mystery it's really well done i think it's really well paced and and it's it's amazing to see uh this kind of a story actually set in a very different culture um that is and and actually having some good representation there so yes i highly recommend that if you have amc plus definitely check it out it's also on AMC. So if you have cable, uh-huh. it airs on AMC on Sunday nights. So I'm looking forward to the next episode. I want to know what happens. I know. <laughs> I'm oh, I love it so much. It's so good. I'm so glad you watched it. Yay. Yes. Very excited. Yeah, my my parents were really into the Tony Hillerman novels. And so nice. when this came out, I was like, ooh. I never read them because I was too young. And then I grew up and I forgot about them. So now I have to read them. <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, I gotta add these to my list at the library. <laughs> Yes, highly recommend that. And then I also watched um, the other night, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Yay! uh, Which, you know, is just, it's Nick Cage as Nick Cage starring in a Nick Cage movie. And it's it's fantastic. Like, I had so much fun. There's so many great quotes. And I like how it gets increasingly meta as the film goes on. (laughs) And at one point I was like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be taking away from this, but I am enjoying it. I need to, yeah, I'm going to buy that movie as soon as it's out on Blu-ray because I love it so much and I want to own it forever. It is a lot of fun. And it's now, um, you can rent it now for like six bucks. So definitely everywhere, Amazon Prime, uh, Vudu, YouTube, et cetera, you can rent it. And um, it's definitely worth it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of fun, especially if you if you have ever enjoyed Nick Cage in anything. This is Nick Cage in all the things. Yes. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And Pedro Pascal is just so freaking delightful. Yes, he's so like starry eyed. It's just like you're adorable. Yep. You're adorable. You're so much in love with Nick Cage. I know. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that is going to close us out for this week. We do have one more episode, um, which I'm sure Karen is very excited about. <laughs> uh, we're gonna and should I reveal what we're talking about? I mean, you could if people wanted to prepare. So if you, if you want to get ready for our episode next week, as I will be getting ready, in fact, your assignment is to watch all Tom Cruise movies. Yes, um, all of them. All of them. We are going to be talking about Tom Cruise next week um, <laughs> because it is his birthday coming up. And, uh, you know, we could not pass that by without acknowledging Tom Cruise in some way, obviously. Yes. So we're going to be talking about Tom Cruise next week. And then we're going to be on a break for a couple of weeks while Karen goes and jaunts around Paris and I sleep. Yes. Uh, so, so yes. So definitely tune into to us next week when we, uh, we talk about Tom Cruise. I'm looking forward to this. I have a lot of films I need to watch. <laughs> I've been waiting for this episode for five years. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Now there's so much pressure. I'm like, oh, I really need to watch these films. I need to be prepared. I need to be ready yeah. for this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and as always, we want to thank all of our lovely and wonderful patrons, uh, who include Adriana, Ali, Brian, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for supporting us, for continuing to support us. We do have most of your stuff together. We're going to be sending out packages. So, um, 
if if we owe you things, definitely be certain that we have your uh, U.S. mailing address and you're going to be getting some fun little things in the mail. Uh, if you would like to join our Patreon, we are on patreon.com slash citizen dame. You do get fun stuff, including bonus episodes, including if you want to listen to our episode about Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which we've talked about numerous times, definitely join our Patreon. Um, and, and you also get episodes early and, uh, and some more fun stuff coming up as well. We are also on our Zazzle store. That's Zazzle.com slash Citizen Dame pod. And we do have a Ko-Fi account, co-fi.com slash Citizen Dame. You can also check out our reviews on our website, CitizenDamePod.com. I've got a few more niggling remaining Tribeca reviews to, to get put up as well as a review of good luck to you, Leo Grand. Um, and and I think that Karen has one or two other things coming up as well. I do. Uh, we you can also get in touch with us a multitude of ways. Uh, our email is citizendamepod at gmail.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod and letterboxed at citizendame, where we have our ongoing pride movie list, which you should watch all of the films on there if you have not seen them. And if you have, watch them again. Uh, yeah, and exactly. you can also get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And that will close us out for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Hey. So how'd it go? I'm here, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought we might need a getaway car. Hmm. You know what the difference is between you and me, Violet? No. Me neither. Well, she's all you'd ever want. She's the kind of...